time to get started this morning. We're glad you're here today. We want to welcome our visitors today, especially. Glad you're here. Always, uh, always good to have folks from from out of town and folks from the local area too. We are studying the gospel account of John in our class here. We are in chapter 15 today, John chapter 15. Let's go to God in prayer and then we'll study together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessing of Bible study. We're thankful for uh, the opportunity uh, to do that this morning. We're thankful for uh, the book of John and uh, for what it reveals to us about Jesus, our Savior. And we pray that you would bless our study today. We pray, Father, that uh, you would... Bless those uh, of our number here who <clears throat> who are uh, sick, uh, those that are uh, bereaved, uh, those that are struggling. We pray that with each one uh, you would bless them uh, according to their need. Father, we thank you for uh, all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And we pray that uh, each day that we live we would express our gratitude not just in our words, but in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. We have mentioned, uh, or I guess we did this last week, just uh, by way of um, uh, background uh, material, that John chapters 14, 15, and 16 uh, comprise uh, a rather large section uh, in which Jesus has some personal uh, interaction with uh, his closest disciples, the eleven. Uh, Judas has left at this point. He is uh, out uh, finalizing his deal with the religious leaders uh, to apprehend Jesus. And so Jesus has been left now with uh, just the eleven, and he is giving them some specific instructions uh, about, uh, well, a lot of things, but uh, primarily he's, he's talking to them about things that are going to happen after he leaves them. And, uh, <clears throat> and so this is, this is uh, right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, uh, and then he'll be arrested later that, that evening, that night. All right, so we're kind of right in the middle of that discourse between Jesus and his disciples and the, the 11 apostles. In chapter 15, Jesus is going to focus mainly on relationships. Uh, the relationship that he has with his disciples and the relationship that, uh, that the disciples uh, have with each other and then the relationship that his disciples would have with the world. And so this is kind of a... a that's kind of the, the, the major theme of chapter 15, relationships. So let's talk about the relationship of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, that comes in uh, verses 1 through 11. 
at the end of our class, or toward the end of it, we'll look at some practical applications. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15 is the uh, one of the Lord's more famous um, teachings in the book of John because it has to do with the vine and the branches. Jesus identifies himself as the vine, verse 1 of chapter 15. He identifies his father as the vine dresser, the one uh, in charge of the, the keeping of the vine. And his disciples are identified as the branches. He'll say that specifically in verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Now, this section uh, has, it seems to me, two primary points. And I say that because they, they're the two points that are mentioned more often than anything else in this uh, short section of 11 verses. And they seem to be this. The two primary points seem to be, one, the importance of bearing fruit. The importance of them bearing fruit. He'll mention that in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, this, that, and the other happens. Verse 4, uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you. Uh, verse uh, 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then verse 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So he keeps coming back to this idea of them bearing fruit. Now, what is the fruit? That's the question that often comes up. What the disciples are uh, supposed to bear? <clears throat> there have been basically two ideas that have been put forward in that regard. Um, one is uh, that, that it refers to evangelistic effort uh, on the part of the disciples and that uh, the fruit to be born uh, would be uh, additional uh, disciples, additional Christians. And so as, as disciples of Jesus, the apostles specifically, and then others who are disciples of His, as they engage in evangelistic effort, they bear fruit. I, I'm not going to say that that's uh, certainly not a, um, uh, you know, certainly not a, a, a bad thing. Obviously, we want to see more, more Christians uh, come about, more people converted to Christ. But it would seem to me, and I'm not dogmatic on this, but it would seem to me that the analogy would require that new Christians would be additional branches. Um, if, if disciples are identified as the branches, which Jesus does, I'm the vine, you are the branches, it would seem that, in carrying out the analogy, that additional disciples would be additional branches. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if evangelistic effort is the primary application there. Um, I tend to think of it more in, in these terms. Fruit, you think about the analogy, fruit that exists on a vine that appears on uh, the branch of a vine, that fruit is evidence that the branch is growing, that the branch is healthy. Uh, it, 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 it evidences the growth and maturity of the branch on which the fruit grows. Uh, I think this is more the nature of the fruit of which Jesus speaks here, that the fruit is... And the fruit that he wants them to bear is for them to bear and show forth the evidence 
that they are growing and maturing. Isn't, isn't one of the problems that, that is in the back of a lot of the teaching that Jesus gives in this section rooted in the fact that the disciples at this time were, were having one of their debates about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? We talked about that in chapter 13 when they first got into this upper room. Uh, and other places, this was kind of an ongoing thing, and Jesus is teaching them, look, by, by example, washes their feet, show them, showing them servanthood and, and talking to them about how they need to love each other. All that is, is, could be placed under the broad umbrella of these guys need to mature. These guys need to grow up spiritually and show the evidence of that. And um, so I think this, is, this may be, or at least not exclusively, but at least part of, what Jesus is intending here is that he wants for his disciples to continue to show evidence that they are growing and maturing. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's out of place to connect uh, another place in the New Testament where the concept of fruit uh, is, uh, is brought up. And that's in Paul's writing in Galatians 5 where he identifies the fruit of the Spirit. All those characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are, are, are not those uh, characteristics, the evidence that a Christian is growing and maturing in the faith. The more they develop those characteristics, the more they're showing evidence of their growth. Uh, and so, um, uh, so when he talks about how important it is for them to bear fruit, uh, I tend to think it's more that than evangelistic effort, though, so, though certainly evangelistic effort is, is a good thing and a necessary thing. So that's, that's important thing number one is this, this emphasis on bearing fruit. The second thing that comes up uh, often in these few verses is the necessity of their remaining connected to the vine in order to bear that fruit. Notice how many times that comes up. Verse 4, abide in me, remain in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Verse 5 again. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Verse 9, abide in my love, end of the verse. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Over and over again, you have this emphasis on abide in me, stay connected to me. All right. so Jesus is making the point here then, that just like branches in a vine must remain attached to the vine in order to continue to live, to grow, to produce fruit, the disciples must maintain their connection to Him in order to do the same. And so He's emphasizing that you must maintain your connection, your fellowship with Me if you want to bear the kind of fruit that's necessary to bring honor and glory to God and prove that you are indeed my disciples. That's verse 8. All right? How do you do that? How do you remain connected 
to Jesus. How do you abide in Him? Well, He gives us some answers. In the first place, disciples maintain their connection, their fellowship with Jesus by submitting to His authority and obeying Him. Look at verse 7, chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide and my words abide in you, ask what you, ask what you wish, it will be done. So this connection involves allowing His word to abide in us. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's a direct connection there. Look at verse uh, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Friendship is the relationship, right? Friendship is, is just one way of talking about the close connection or fellowship that we have with Jesus. And so... Several places, at least three places, in this context, Jesus identifies the importance of submitting to Him, submitting to His authority, being obedient to Him as a necessary means by which we maintain that connection to Him that's necessary for us to bear proper fruit in our life. The second thing that is not specifically mentioned here in John 15, but it is mentioned in the same discourse in the previous chapter, 14, is that Jesus would maintain His connection and His fellowship with His disciples through the presence of the Spirit in those disciples. Look back in chapter 14, beginning in verse um, 16, where He mentions... Uh, that, that the Father will give to them another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. We talked about that last week. Because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And then verse 18, I'll not leave you orphans. I will come to you. We talked about this last week, how that Jesus specifically had just previously told them He was leaving. I'm leaving, but then He says in verse 18, I will come to you. Well, in what sense? I believe in the sense that Jesus was going to personally be in heaven, but He would representatively be in them through the presence of the Spirit. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, I think this, this passage is a good parallel. 1 John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Because He has given us of His Spirit. How do I know that I abide in God? How do I know that God abides in me? Well, John says it's because He's given us His Spirit. That's how we know. So, we have a connection, a fellowship with deity through the Spirit that is given to those who obey Him. Acts 5, verse 32. So, when Jesus says, you need to abide in my love, you need to abide in me and I in you so that you can bear much fruit, glorify God, and prove by that that you are genuinely my disciple. And you do that by submitting yourself to His authority, living according to His direction. And when you do that, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. All right? So, I think that's what's happening, or that's the teaching that he's given, that he's giving 
here in chapter 15. Maintain your connection to me, and that will enable you to grow and mature, which they desperately needed to do. And who doesn't, for that matter? And then Jesus adds, look at verse 10 and 11. 11 specifically. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When we... When we get our life where it needs to be, in the sense that we are submitting to the authority of Jesus, we are allowing His Word to abide in us, and to control us, and to guide us, and we thereby maintain that fellowship, that closeness with the Lord, that then enables us to experience joy in this life. And so that's why Jesus said, I'm telling you all of this. I'm giving you all the means of the instruction that if you follow it, you'll maintain your fellowship with me. I'm telling you all of that so that when you do that, you'll be able to realize and experience joy. Not just any joy, my joy. The joy that he experiences, the joy that he has, that comes through his fellowship with his Father. All right? And so there is great joy, fullness of joy, in keeping the commandments of God. Tie in, if you would like, a couple of passages from the Psalms on that point. Psalm 19, verse 8. Psalm 19, 8. If you start in 7, you get the, the whole context. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. They bring joy. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 24. Psalm 119, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. So there is great joy to be had when we live a life that's not for self, but a life that is lived in submission to God. All right, so the relationship of the disciples to Jesus, they must maintain their connection. And part of that is is up to them. If they don't submit to Him, then the connection is going to be broken. Same is true with us. So, so part of this relationship involves uh, our decisions, our choices. All right, number two, the relationship of the disciples to each other. We start in verses 12, verse 12 and go through verse 17. Remember, and I mentioned this earlier, that the disciples you know, had been involved in this ongoing feud about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus again reminds them that instead of fighting with each other, they need to be willing to die for each other. And they were going to have to um, really work on their character to reach that point. Because it didn't seem like they were there yet. You know, they've been busy uh, bickering back and forth with each other about who was going to be the... you know, brother big name uh, in, in the kingdom. Well, Jesus, again, comes back to that and says, 
This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He mentioned that back in chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35. Commandment I give you that you love one another just loved you. Was by which they were to um, by which they were to judge whether or not their love was uh, right, was appropriate. Did it match his love for them? So it'd be good for us to consider some of the characteristics of his love for them. We mentioned a couple of them. One. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Alright, so you, when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, that's, that's part of what that love involves. Being willing to sacrifice for friends. And, but even beyond that, if you want to think about the love of Jesus, He didn't just sacrifice Himself for those that were His friends. He sacrificed Himself for those that were His enemies too. Isn't that right? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 5? Even when we were enemies, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were uh, saved by His Death, how does, it, how does that word it? Verse 10, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So the, the, the love of Jesus involves sacrifice for His friends, but not just for His friends, even for His enemies. So Jesus says, you love each other just like I've loved you. So even if they considered each other enemies, which I don't believe they did. They were bickering, but I don't think they considered each other enemies. But even if they did, the love of Jesus would involve love for everybody. Then the other thing, the other characteristic that he specifically mentions back in John 15 of his love has to do with close fellowship. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So the love of Jesus not only involved um, this, the, the principle of sacrifice, but also close fellowship. Jesus said, Here, here's how I look at you. And I don't look at you as mere servants. But I look at you as more than that. Friends. Okay? Now, when Jesus says, incidentally, uh, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. I don't believe that we should understand Him to be saying that under no circumstances and in, in no sense, in no way, shape, or form, are you a servant. Okay? I think he's using uh, some ellipsis, which is a, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a literary device or, or, a, or a verbal com a communication device where words are not stated, 
but they're understood. And usually it takes the form of the, the word merely uh, could be added to get the sense. Not only I no longer merely call you friends, but also friends. Uh, because Peter, one of the ones to whom he's speaking right here, to whom he said, I no longer call you servant, doulos, slave. Peter would later write in Second Peter 1 verse 1 and identify himself as servant, slave. Same word, bondservant. Now, if Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he was, then, and this statement in John 15 was to be taken as an absolute, then, then there's a problem. Okay? So what Jesus is saying to them is, you are not just servants. I don't refer to you just as servants. But you are friends also. Jesus has done this before, this, this figure, this uh, device called ellipsis. Remember back in... Um, uh, is it chapter uh, f- five? No. Um, where is that? I should have looked it up. For Jesus said, uh, "He that believes on me believes not on me, but on him who sent me." Is that? Do you remember where that is, Alan? Because I don't. It's in John. Read the book of John. You'll come across it. He that believes on me, believes not on me, but on him who sent me. Now, if you take that as an absolute, then Jesus is speaking nonsense. He that believes on me doesn't believe on me. Well, what does that even mean? But if you understand it as this, this literary device, he's saying, he that believes on me does not merely believe on me, but also on him who sent me. Now that makes sense, and when we and even when we read it, we understand that that's what that's the point he's making. Even though he doesn't use those words, he that believes on me doesn't believe on me only, but also on him who sent me. I think he's doing that here in John 15 when he says, "No longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you only servants, but also I call you friends." Back to the point, I believe the point is, Jesus is saying that His love for them, which He's called upon them to emulate, love one another as I've loved you, it involves close fellowship. It involves this idea of friendship. And they would maintain their friendship with Him by, again, submitting to Him. That's verse 14. You are my friends if... You do what I command you. All right? So Jesus, his relationship with his disciples was a close one. He would call them friend. He would call them brother. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Hebrews 2 verse 11. So close fellowship. So when Jesus says, love each other as I've loved you, be willing to sacrifice for each other. Quit fighting with each other and start fighting for each other. And have a close relationship. But then he adds to eight and 17 that the relationship that they did experience with him, a relationship that involved 
that close fellowship, that friendship, that relationship would not have existed had he not initiated it. I called you, verse 16. I chose you. And so the, the point there is, you've got something special in this relationship. But remember why you have it. You have it because I chose you, not because you chose me. It's reminiscent of 1 John 4, verse 19, where John would later write, We love him because, what? He first loved us. He took the initiative. God acted first. And because he acted first, we then respond to him. In, in a similar way. Same thing is true with that relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. All right, then three. Third major point. We've looked at the relationship uh, of uh, Jesus to his disciples, vine and the branches. The relationship the disciples are to have with each other, love each other as I've loved you. And then number three, the relationship of the disciples to the world. That's 18 through uh, the uh, end of the chapter. And basically, in this section, Jesus is preparing them to be hated. Um, he's, you know, he's not going to paint a, um, a rosy picture of things for them just to, I don't know, you know, curry their, their favor or, or what. I, he, he's going to be very plain with them and say, you know what, your life is not going to be easy following me. Because you're going to be the recipient of the hatred of the world. They're, the world is going to look at you with hostility and treat you with hostility. Just like they were doing with him. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Their world hates you. And then he reminds them, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So, based on that, that principle, which is undergirding this, this section, that a servant's not greater than his master, which incidentally, if the statement Jesus made earlier, that I no longer call you servants, was an absolute, then this passage doesn't make sense. <laughs> Because he said, remember I told you a servant's not greater than his master, and that's what you are, my servants? Well, he just told them they weren't servants. Well, they're not merely servants. They're also friends. So the, his point is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to serve me, you're going to be my disciple, then in a, in a very real sense, how could you, as disciple of Christ, expect to live as he lived, Teach as he taught in and to a world that still loves darkness more than light and at the same time not expect to be treated as he was treated. Isn't that a, isn't that a good question? You know, it, if, it, it's, well, let me tell you a personal story. Uh, I, have, I have struggled... Um, my whole life, really, with mm, having to deal with a, a desire, too much of a desire, to be, uh, to be liked, to be accepted, 
when I was a kid, <clears throat> uh, in my early teen years, um, I, I was on, uh, I was on uh, ulcer medication because uh, I, I, I worried constantly about that, that kind of thing, about being liked, about being accepted. And, um, you know, and it's, I still fight it, not to the degree that I did. I think I've grown and matured some since then, I hope. Uh, but but it still happens. You know, I, I still struggle with that. And I think probably all of us to some degree do. Maybe some more than others. But I can remember uh, my my dad sitting me down one time when I was, I don't know, 13, 14. And, uh, and he made this point to me. But, but he made it in, in his way. <laughs> uh, he, you know, my dad, could, you know, was... You know, there wasn't a lot of gray area with him, and uh, and he and he. We were talking one day, and and you know I was de- trying to deal with this, and he basically said, he said, look, he said, Jesus lived the perfect life, didn't he? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's right, he did. Never sinned, never did anything wrong. He lived the absolute perfect life. And they hung him between thieves. Now what makes you think that you're going to get through life yourself if you're trying to follow him and not have somebody not like you? <laughs> you know, why do you think, why, why are you entertaining that thought that that's even a possibility? Why are you trying to live your life in a way that brings about that result while at the same time trying to live for Jesus when you know that living for Jesus is not going to result in everybody liking you? Well, you know what? That's a great question. And I didn't have an answer for it at 13. (laughs) I don't have an answer. Because the reality is you can't do it. You just can't. And, And the sooner that we recognize and admit the fact that that I am not going to get through this life if I live it the way I'm supposed to live it. I'm not going to get through this life without upsetting somebody at some point. Just not. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, I believe it's verse 26, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For so they did to the false prophets. It's just not going to happen. The world hates light. People that are are worldly-minded, people that are evil-minded, and are there a handful of those in the world? All right. They, They don't... They not only don't want truth and light, they want you specifically to give tacit approval to their darkness and their evil. If you're not willing to do that, and you shouldn't be, well, then just expect people not to like you. The Bible, the Bible refers to living the Christian life as a war for some reason. You know, that, that terminology is not accidental. We're in a war here.
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, great, great point. Yeah, Alan. If you didn't catch that, Alan was saying that this dovetails perfectly, and it does, with what Jesus had just told his disciples about. Look, you, you guys need to love one another. You you guys need to develop that relationship with each other. Quit fighting with each other, and have compassion for each other, and love each other, and build those relationships because. You're not going to get love and compassion from the world. They're, they're going to hate you. So we need to stick together and, and, and get, get the benefit of close relationships and close fellowship with each other so that when the world hates us, we'll have that added benefit and that added help of support and love and compassion from each other that we're definitely not going to get from people out in the world. Great point. All right. So, Jesus says, look, the world, the world hates me now. And it hated me first. <laughs> and so it's going to hate you too. And he offers three reasons why we need to remember that. Number one, verse 19, because we as disciples of Jesus are not of this world. It's kind of the point we've been making. Uh, and Alan mentioned it too, the purposes of the world, uh, the goals of the worldly-minded, motivations, emphases, priorities, loves, all those things are, uh, are opposed to what we value, what we are motivated by, our purposes, our goals. Those things are just not compatible. The world champions ungodliness and carnality and evil. We just... Do that and follow the Lord. And so when that happens, there's going to be conflict. So we're not of the world. Number two, the world doesn't know God. The reason why they're going to treat disciples of Jesus shamefully is because they don't know God. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And the funny thing about that is that a lot of the times in which we will face mistreatment, it will come from people who think that they know God and are standing up for God and standing up for right principles. When in reality, they're not. They don't know God. People today, many of them, are not unlike a lot of people throughout history in that they think that God is pretty much just like they are. And, you know, we've, we've talked at times, or I think we've, we've probably heard the terminology, that sometimes we will create God in our own image. Yeah, Psalm 50, verse 21 is a passage that specifically says that, where God said to His people, You thought that I was altogether likened to yourselves. A lot, of people, a lot of people justify their sinful living and then they'll project those attitudes onto God to may perhaps soothe their own consciences. That if God is like that, then they're okay. Third reason why 
disciples will be mistreated is because Jesus exposed their sin. 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. His point there is basically this. His enemies, those that were rejecting him, had actually seen his miracles and rejected him anyway. They had heard his teaching personally and rejected him anyway. And so they bore uh, guilt that somebody who hadn't, seen what they saw, didn't bear. In other words, if he had not taught them, they would not have rejected him. How could they reject that which they had never heard? But because they heard it, and because they saw it, they saw the evidence in his miracles, therefore they had absolutely no excuse for having rejected what he taught. And so, they hated me without cause, end of verse 25. Now, on the positive side, verse 20, go back a little bit, verse 20, After he said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So on the positive side, Jesus said, look, if 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 there are people who have been receptive to me, and, and they'll be receptive to you too. It's kind of interesting to me anyway, maybe to you, uh, to think about some of those who were receptive to Jesus. Uh, in his when he was physically on the earth, um, <clears throat> think about Nicodemus, uh, Zacchaeus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know, go th- go through the gospel accounts and think about all of those who showed a, a, a receptivity to Jesus and his teaching. It's it's interesting to me to think about those people, Nicodemus and Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Zacchaeus, perhaps, all those people. It's it's interesting to me to think about, if they were still around, that that they were members of the church. That that after the Lord ascended back to the Father and they had been receptive to the Lord's teaching while He was there, did they continue to be receptive and, and listen to the apostles and obey the gospel and become members of the church? I'd like to think that. In fact, the you know, Bible doesn't specifically come out and say and it's possible that some that were initially receptive to him uh, may have turned against him later. That's certainly possible. But it's interesting to think about. Based on what Jesus said, if they listen to me... And at the end of the chapter, verses 26 and 27, Jesus reminds them again of the coming of the Spirit who would reveal truth to them, and they then in turn would reveal that truth to others. All right. <clears throat> some practical lessons. Number one, you, one cannot bear fruit for God without being attached to the vine. We, we talked really about, I'm not going to go back and belabor that point, just said, if you don't abide in me, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. You might tie in with that uh, as kind of a parallel, uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, uh, 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, parenthetically, now you're attached to the vine, 
the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in the end, eternal life. So when, when you are attached to the vine, it enables you to produce fruit that leads to sanctification and then ultimately to eternal life. Is that the line? Okay. Quickly, the Word of God cleans, purifies, and prunes us. Jesus talked about that in verse 3, about uh, uh, well, end of verse 2, the branch that bears fruit, uh, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And then He says, and you are, also, you are already clean from the same word for pruned through the word that I've spoken to you. God's word has a, a pruning effect on us. It uh, it, it helps to mold our character. Hebrews 4, verse 12, other, other passages. Number three, it's possible to be severed from the vine and burned, though once attached to it. Chapter 15, verse 6. Unfruitful branches are cut off and burned. So those are branches that were once attached to the vine. They had fellowship with Jesus. But they're taken away. So that doesn't coincide with, with some who teach that once you're attached to the vine, you, you can't be severed or separated. Evidently, you can. Our continued connection with the vine depends, at least in part, on our obedience. Remember, we talked about that. If my word abides in you, and so forth. Loving Jesus, number next, cannot be divorced from obeying Him. See, our relationship with Jesus is not healthy just because we may feel like it is. Just because, you know, just because we may have a warm feeling about our relationship with Jesus does not necessarily mean that it's worth feeling warm over. You know, there, there are criteria by which we can judge whether or not our relationship with the Lord is what it should be. And that involves our submissiveness to Him. You're my friends if you obey, verse 14. Verses 9 and 10 make the same point. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Jesus wants our joy full. Number next, verse 11. We talked about that. And then to follow Jesus is to face hostility from those who don't. We talked about that too. All right. Well, there you go. That's chapter 15, at least uh, some of it. God willing, we'll look at 16 next week. Thank you much.